Now it's time for Rod and Real Radio with your hosts, hop along John Cassidy, fresh and saltwater expert angler Stan Vanderberg, and all-around outdoors fishing and hunting enthusiast Wendy Toshihara. If you love the outdoors, enjoy salt or freshwater fishing, this is the show for you. We'll cover most all of the fishing tournaments and events with special reports while providing you with the information you need as to how and where to experience the best fishing opportunities in Southern California, Baja, Alaska, or just about anywhere the fish are biting. Rod and Real Radio brought to you by El Cajon Ford at Broadway and Main or online at ElCajonFord.com. Whether it's time for a new or used car or truck or you need to take advantage of San Diego's best quick lane for service with genuine Ford parts, brand name tires at competitive prices, remember nobody beats El Cajon Ford. We have some fantastic guests and reports lined up for you this evening, so sit back, relax, and get ready for the fastest two hours in radio. It's all right here, right now, on Rod and Real Radio, the best stop on your radio. Radio dial for all the information you need for fishing opportunities all over the United States. Now here's your host, Hop Along, John Cassidy. Well, thank you, Mark Larson in Southern California. Welcome again to another Sunday edition of Rod and Reel Radio. I am indeed your underfished host, Hop Along, John Cassidy, and I think we have a great show lined up for you tonight. Hey, let me give you a rundown just exactly who's with us. Starting right out of the gate, we are going to have the engineer in charge from the San Diego Port District for the Shelter Island Boat Launch Facility Improvement Project, Eric Guerrero. There's been a lot of rumors about what's happening, what's worked, what hasn't worked. Eric's going to put all those rumors aside and going to tell us exactly what's happening and what will be in store for us here in the not-too-distant future. And then later on to the show... Captain James McDaniels is going to be with us. Have you ever fished Grande sports fishing? Well, I tell you, the Grande is a great vessel. It's, it has a new home. It's moving over to H&M Landing. You're going to want to find all about James and the move to H&M Landing, and we're going to have uh, the owner-operator of the Grande on with us. And then in the second hour, this man is a legend in the fishing lore industry and then also in the writing industry, Mr. Al Kalin. If you have ever fished a tournament, maybe, uh, you know, within the past 30 years and used a Kalin, turn, uh, Kalin lure or jig head, this is the guy that made the head. Al Kalin's going to be with us later on in the show, so it's going to be a great show. Sit back and relax, but before we get everything going, let me please introduce to you the co-host with me here at Rod and Reel Radio. First of all, this gentleman is the voice of 1-800-BASSBOAT and the pretty darn good freshwater and saltwater angler himself, Mr. Stan Vandenberg. Stan, how you doing tonight, sir? So far, so good, John. Good evening, everybody. You know, it's had, I've had a, uh, two weekends of, of tournaments. i got another one coming up, so I'm just right getting, getting warmed up for the year. <laughs> Wow, I can say, well, you know, Stan, hopefully we can do a little reporting on the tournament because there was a big tournament in Alabama, another great one uh, at Lake Havasu. There was the National Bass West at Castaic. There was a, a great tournament uh, down at Otai. So I hope we'll have some uh, time to talk about those events and tell you some of the guests we're going to have on next week. But let's don't get that far ahead of ourselves. Good idea. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and... 
Here's my other co-host. Man, I am so happy she was able to be with us tonight. I know she was visiting a good friend that was in the hospital. She didn't know whether or not she'd be able to make it or not, uh, tonight or not. But she's here, live, in the flesh, the national sales manager for Iserline, and she represents many other fine products in the fishing industry. Mr. Win Miss Wendy Toshihara. <laughs> Wendy, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing good. I had a nice week. I got to go up to, to Salinas and to go visit Tackle Warehouse and Turner's Outdoors in Salinas. And, of course, while I was out there, I had to do a little fishing. So I did some fish fishing in the morning and a little black bass fishing in the afternoon. Well, I noticed you posted a picture. <laughs> you posted a picture with you, and you were in uh, Santa Margarita, I think. And Santa Margarita, you know, put out one of the biggest bass you know, caught in the nation several years ago, if I'm not mistaken. So even though it's uh, not a well-known lake, there's still some great bass in there. Yeah, and you know what? I didn't catch any games there all that size. So, and I was just uh, fishing from shore, so I had a good time. Right. Hey, well, guys, uh, let's get going because of the fact I want to get to our first guest. There's been a lot of rumors about what's been happening at the Shelter Island launch ramp. You talk to one person, they go, well, my brother knows the guy that uh, knows the fellow that's running the crane, and this isn't working, that isn't working. You know, let's get all these rumors aside, find out what's happening to the launch ramp here at Shelter Island when it comes to the improvement project. What better guy to talk to then than the uh, Port District's lead engineer that's overseeing this project, Mr. Eric Guerrero. And Eric, welcome to Ron Real Radio. Thank you very much, John. How are you doing today? Uh, Wendy, Stan, and I, we are doing all well. But, Eric, before we start getting on to where we are, can, for those people that have maybe been living under a rock for the past year or something <laughs> like that, that are just coming out, can you give us a little uh, oversight on the Shelter Island launch ramp itself and the process of getting this uh, improvement project going and, and get us up to speed on where we are today. Uh, absolutely, John. So uh, the Shelter Island Boat Launch Improvement Project is a uh, project currently being uh, spearheaded by the Port District, uh, the San Diego Port. Uh, the entire project is actually grant-funded by the Department of Boating and Waterways, uh, with another grant that we've also received from uh, uh, the Wildlife Conservancy uh, Fund. Uh, the project is moving forward. Uh, one of the objectives of the project as a whole, uh, as some of, some of you may be aware, is uh, we're, in a nutshell, we are pretty much demoing the existing bolt launch that was currently in place. This bolt launch has been in place for a number of decades. Um, for the people that have been utilizing the boat launch, they know what condition it was in. You know, the concrete ramp itself was falling apart. Uh, portions of the jetty would occasionally uh, uh, suffer damage during, during, during storms. Uh, we also had very limited access uh, to uh, the boat itself. The basin was very limited because of the existence of the jetty. So uh, for a number of years now, the Port District has been working with different agencies, including the Department of Boating and Waterways, to identify funding to actually uh, redevelop the boat launch, so not just provide repairs, but really build something that would be newer, more efficient, more up-to-date. 
And uh, that's what's currently going on. So uh, we're able to acquire those funds, and uh, with that, um, I guess, kickstart the project as a whole. All right. So, Erica, uh, uh, I uh, have read that um, the boat launch ramp, before mm-hmm. uh, it was into improvement, was actually accommodating 50,000 launches a year on that ramp in the condition that it was in. Is that uh, uh, actual? That is correct. So uh, part of applying for different grants for this project uh, involved the process of actually doing a count of how many boats were getting launched on this ramp on a yearly basis. And uh, that is the numbers that we have come up with, uh, approximately 50,000 launches a year, which... um, from what I've heard so far, I believe makes us the busiest boat launch in California. Mm. Now, now, does the uh, improvement project, is it just the immediate area surrounding the boat ramp and the marina, or does it have anything to do with the parking facilities or any improvements with any of the facilities that are adjacent to the launch ramp? Um, that's an excellent question, actually, and yes. So uh, it involves the demolition of the existing uh, boat launching uh, facility, which includes the boat ramp as well as the breakwater jetties that were in place, which will be replaced with a new breakwater uh, wall made of uh, precast concrete. Uh, but uh, it also involves it, it also includes some uh, improvements to the adjacent parking lot as well as the adjacent restroom building. Uh, because this is going to be considered a new boat launch, uh, launching facility, uh, there are certain requirements that come with this new facility. So we need to bring uh, ADA parking stalls up to date. We also need to bring uh, restroom stalls uh, up to code. So uh, again, with the development of the boat launching facility, we are also taking this opportunity to improve the adjacent restroom facility as well as the parking lot. All right. Now, you know... Uh Obviously, uh, you know, there was a certain amount of time that was budgeted to get this project done. And I know probably you and the people of the Port District, they'd love to see this project done as soon as possible. But in working and the way it has gone, there have been some unforeseen difficulties that have happened that have somewhat delayed the, um, uh, the project. And can you, you know, tell us a little bit about... What happened and why that caused a delay? Uh, yes, absolutely, John. Um, in a nutshell, uh, the very first um, phase of the project consisted of the removal of the existing earthen jetties. So these were the jetties that were in place uh, that sort of created that basin, right? Um, our the design team put together a set of plans based on existing information that we had as well as based on some geotechnical engineering uh, tests that we performed off the jetties. Um, once we got into construction, we ran into an uh, unforeseen surprise, really. Once we started excavating those jetties, we started encountering very, very, very large uh, chunks of concrete, uh, old construction debris, uh, they were probably put, actually they were definitely put in there during the construction of the original boat launch. So uh, these were definitely not something that we had in mind once we started excavating those jetties. Uh, what that did, uh, it very much complicated uh, the means and methods of excavating the jetty. 
uh, our contractor now was required to bring in much larger pieces of equipment. Uh, we had uh, extremely cumbersome um, uh, just separating process. We, we've been encountering not only you know dirt, which is what was originally expected, but concrete debris, you know, chunks of uh, sidewalk and curbs, probably back from the 40s and 50s. Uh, we've been encountering old concrete piles that may have belonged to other marine structures in the vicinity back in the days. So uh, none of these were anticipated, which is uh, the main reason why we have encountered some substantial delays to the project. Now, Eric, for a while, uh, when the, um, the launch ramp was closed, there was access with one lane. Uh, I know the Port of San Diego had a contract with uh, uh, the sealed boats uh, there that mm-hmm. they could go in and out. And the general public was also using that ramp for a little while. What is mm-hmm. the story on accessibility, uh, you know, to a launch, uh, launching uh, ramp while the project is going on right now? Uh, yes, absolutely. So you are correct. During the beginning of the project, we, which were still during summer months, uh, construction was at its very infant stages. So the port district at the time was able to provide access to the boat launch for both uh, the SEAL tours as well as the general public. Uh, that access was uh, provided by the means of a single lane, um, which, as you can imagine, can be quite cumbersome based on the number of launches we have out there. Um, as soon as the summer season was over, which generally coincides with, with a reduced usage of the boat launch, um, it also coincided with some more heavy activities. That's when the boat launch got closed uh, to the public as a whole. So the current status of the boat launch is that it is still closed to the public. Uh, the SEAL tours still have access to a single lane, um, which is subject to closures, and actually does happen quite often. So uh, whenever we have activities that involve uh, overhead cranes or just things that we don't deem safe to the general public or to the SEAL tours, we tend to just close the ramp as a whole. So uh, at this point, the launch is closed to the public. There's a single lane occasionally utilized by the SEAL tours, depending on construction activities going on at the time. All right. Well, now, Eric, you have a uh, – there is a coffer dam – uh, that mm-hmm. has been uh, put up, I think, in the marina area. And I guess the water in the original uh, marina area has has been drained, so you can better work there. Or, or tell us, am I right with that, or is there uh, other reasons uh, for that coffer dam? No, you are spot on. So uh, the existing or you know the previous launch ramp itself has been demolished, and uh, we are now entering a phase of the project where the contractor will be reconstructing a new concrete ramp. Um, one of the requirements for this project, and it comes directly from the Department of Boating and Waterways, is that this new concrete ramp has to be uh, formed and uh, pretty much built in place, meaning we're not allowed to uh, construct uh, precast panels and simply place them uh, on the bolt ramp. So this the the brand-new bolt ramp is going to be poured in place, which is the reason why we needed to build a coffer dam. So uh, at this point, uh, if you go out there, that's exactly what you see. That is a coffer dam built around uh, the entire bolt ramp facility. Um, 
this week, the contractor is actually going to be resuming some dewatering activities, which means that uh, if you're out of the bolt ramp sometime within the next week or so, you'll be able to see uh, the whole entire bolt ramp basin drained, and the contractor will be performing some activities along the lines of uh, preparing the subgrade for the new concrete ramp. Eric, we've got to take a break right now. Can I ask you to stay on a little longer after the break so we can finish this conversation? Not a problem. All right. Hey, you're listening to Rod and Real Radio. Stan, Wendy, and I were talking with Eric Guerrero. He is the lead engineer from the San Diego Port District, and we are talking about the Shelter Island Boat Launch Ramp Facility Improvement Project. Stay tuned. There's still a lot more to come after these messages. Count on El Cajon Ford, as so many Southern Californians have for years. El Cajon Ford has the cars and trucks you can count on, like the all-new Fusion and Escape, Edge, Explorers, and more. And now, Fiestas with 38 MPG and Focus with 40 miles per gallon highway, plus C-Max Energy with up to 42 highway EPA estimates. El Cajon Ford has them now. Shop online at ElCajonFord.com. Choose from hundreds of your favorite F-Series trucks, too. El Cajon Ford knows trucks, no matter what you're hauling or towing, for a great weekend of fishing or for some fun in the desert. Now get special savings on every F-Series truck in stock, 150s, 250s, 350s, at El Cajon Ford. We have commercial trucks, too, including the all-new Transit Connect. Finally, a commercial van with great mileage, helping your business get moving again. El Cajon Ford, worth the short drive from anywhere in Southern California, Broadway and East Main and El Cajon or online anytime, anywhere at ElCajonFord.com. Gamakatsu hooks are made from high-grade carbon steel specialty heat treater to make them light and extra strong but not brittle. The Gamakatsu sharpening process is the most modern in the world and results in a perfectly conical point that is unequaled in sharpness. Gamakatsu offers a huge variety of hooks for all types of fishing, drop shot, extra wide gap, worm hooks, finesse wide gap, and a lot more. Gamakatsu has a hook for whatever style of fishing you want to do. Don't waste your time on a cheap hook. Ask for Gamakatsu hooks at your favorite tackle store now. He's not just my fishing buddy. After 30 years, he's a brother, and I'd sure hate to lose him. His bass boat's got nothing to do with it. So I make sure both of us wear a life jacket. Save the ones you love, even if they don't own a fancy boat. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. Angler's Arsenal is the serious angler's first choice for hand-poured plastics, McCoy line, Spro products, Gamakatsu hooks, G. Loomis fishing rods, Shimano products, Ovet reels, and just about anything you hear advertised on Rod and Reel Radio. Go to anglersarsenal.com and visit our online tackle store. See the huge selection of Western Plastics hand-poured baits, all at anglersarsenal.com. Angler's Arsenal Tackle Store is conveniently located in La Mesa, just off Interstate 8. Give us a call at 1-800-428-8730. 2015 and 16, Quantum Fishing's gone and done it again for you with the brand new redesigned Smoke PT Reel Series. Everything from your spinning reels all the way to your bait casters, the PTA design has a new PTXA frame, lighter, stronger, bone crushing drag. Quantum Fishing, we are performance tuned. Check them out at Angler's Arsenal in La Mesa or anglersarsenal.com or give us a call at 619 466 8355. Hi, this is BSS record holder Dean Rojas. El Cajon Ford helped me when I got started in my career and let them help you with a new F-Series Ford truck. And remember, nobody beats El Cajon Ford. Stan, Wendy, and I, we want to welcome you back to Rod and Reel Radio. We have with us 
the lead engineer for the uh, Shelter Island Boat Launch Ramp Improvement Project from the Port of San Diego, Mr. Eric Guerrero. And, Eric, thank you for being with us, sir. Oh, thank you for having me. Right. Hey, we were talking about where the launch ramp is, you know, right at this present time. Now, there is an, a new phase that uh, is going to be starting here in just a little bit, and I, this isn't meant as a pun, but it's going to have a, a little higher impact on the area, and they are mm-hmm. going to be pile-driving uh, some posts um, into the bay floor. Can you can you tell us what uh, that phase of the project is about? Uh, yes, absolutely. So uh, the next phase we are about to enter is the actual construction phase. So at this point, what we'll be doing uh, is actually placing the piles that will ultimately support the new concrete breakwater walls. So uh, these are, I believe, we have somewhere in the range of 50, maybe 56, 57 piles. Uh, each one of these piles uh, will vary in length from all the way from 45 to 46 feet to 57 footers, uh, and all, every single one of them will have to be driven down uh, well below mud line. So that activity is starting, um, some of it actually started this past, per, uh, this past week. Some in-water pile driving will be starting within the next couple of weeks or so, and uh, it's expected to last for uh, quite a few weeks ahead of us. All right. Now, you know, a lot of people remember uh, a couple of seasons ago when the Navy was uh, uh, improving some of their piers uh, mm-hmm. down over the Naval uh, Training Center, uh, and the uh, uh, the bait barge had to be moved to a different location in the bay because they were afraid that the impact of the pile drivers would impact fish that were in the bay. Uh, is this going to be uh, a little bit less intrusive, and so that doesn't necessarily have to be done? You know, uh, to be fair to you, I'm not familiar with the activity involved in the Navy's project, although I will tell you uh, this project you know, went through some extensive permitting, and uh, one of the requirements we had was to cordon off approximately 700 feet around the pile driving activities. Um, I know the majority of the piles will be driven down via, uh, by the means of either vibration or jetting, uh, we have already had some activities in our project that included uh, vibrating hammers or jetting um, in the water. I know those activities tend to be less intrusive and less impactful to fishing as well. Um, the next phase that we're about to enter will include the use of impact hammers. So uh, that's the type of pile driving that, uh, as you're aware, will generate a little more noise. Um, I, unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot of information on the Navy project to be able to compare this. Um, I don't foresee it being an issue for the bait barge, but uh, that is definitely something I'll be looking into now that you brought it up. All right. And, uh, you know, uh, this project is uh, just of so much importance, not only to the recreational, but the commercial mm-hmm. fishermen here in San Diego because of the the numbers of launches that you've seen. I. I know you guys are in a hurry. Uh, you want to get it done right, but you also want to get it done expeditiously. But also, this is a project that people can come and actually see what's happening. Uh, you're allowing parking 
in the parking lot where there used to be trailers so people mm-hmm. can come and, and park and then they can almost walk right up to the edge of the site and view mm-hmm. exactly what's happening every day. That's correct. Actually, uh, the way I tend to refer to it is uh, it's one of the projects where we have the largest number of inspectors because on a daily basis, we have dozens of people just, uh, you know, pretty much lining up along the fence and actually observing the activities. Um, and uh, not only that, we have been capturing a lot of the construction via time-lapse photography. And so, um, as a matter of fact, by the end of this week, I expect that we will be uploading to the project's webpage the latest uh, footage, which will pretty much encompass all the construction to date up to the end of last week. (laughs) All right. You know, the original launch ramp, I think, was completed in 1953, somewhere right around that area. And at Mm -hmm. that time, the size of the boats and the size of the vehicles that were using it were, you know, a certain length. Nowadays, Mm -hmm. when you get there, you're seeing giant yachts, you're seeing uh, big cab trucks launching boats there. Will the launch ramp be able to accommodate the launching of uh, vehicles that have a lot longer length than before? Um, I believe so, John. Um, To tell you the truth, I was not involved on the design of this project. I really took over at the construction phase, but I believe that uh, part of coming up with the design for this new boat launch, uh, it included, uh, you know, a thorough assessment of how uh, pretty much the boating community has changed as a whole. Uh, That's part of the reason why we more than doubled, uh, you know, the linear footage of floating docks and increased the basin. So uh, I would be surprised if we cannot accommodate larger boats compared to what was in place previously. All right. I guess now, Eric, this is the big cash question. Uh, Mm. According to the way the schedule is going right now, uh, do you have an anticipated finish date uh, for this project, or will half of the project be reopened so that the public can start using the launch ramp again, or is it going to be opened all at one time when the project is completed? That is also an excellent question, John. And uh, to tell you the truth, uh, at this point, it will truly depend on what happens with the pile driving activity we have coming up. Um, as of right now, the message that I'm pretty much, that guess the port is putting out to the public is that this summer we will be finishing this boat launch and reopening to the public. Uh, the exact date will depend on the pile driving activities. Uh, as I had mentioned to you, we did have some concerns with um, pre-existing construction debris, large chunks of concrete that were out there. Um, we Although I don't, we don't expect to run into a significant amount of it, that this risk is still out there. So for that reason, uh, the message that I would like the public to keep in mind is for this summer, that's our goal to open up the boat launch. Whether that's going to be in the month of June or July will really depend on the activities coming up. Um, I think it's fair to say that we'll have a much better idea within the next three to four weeks, depending on how the pile driving goes forward. All right, Eric, you know, you go up and down the the coast and you launch at other facilities you uh, you, uh most uh, private boaters have to pay a stipend in order to to launch tell mm-hmm. me what is going to be the charge to launch at this beautiful new launch ramp that we're spending almost 10 million dollars on uh at this point john 
to my knowledge, I do not believe we have any plans of charging for launching boats on the Shelter Island boat launch, uh, at least not to my knowledge. As far as I know, that that's going to continue to be a public boat launch uh, with no fees. All right. Well, Eric, if you don't mind, can we uh, 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 check in with you from time to time to get an update on what's happening as we get closer and closer to the summer? Absolutely. Actually, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, we really appreciate you helping us get the word out. You know, uh, from time to time, we send out updates to the public as a whole, mostly via emails. But, uh, yes, I would actually appreciate if you could help us keep the public informed as to the progress on the project. Now, I don't have it in front of me, but if people want to check with the Port District site, I think do you not also have uh, progress reports on the San Diego Port District site, too? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you visit our web page, uh, we actually have a dedicated web page to this project, which is uh, www.portofsandiego.org forward slash S-I-B-L, as in Shelter Island Bolt Launch. All right. Eric Guerrero, thank you for taking the time to be with us and, and set us straight on exactly what's happening at the launch ramp here down in San Diego on uh, uh, Shelter Island. Uh, it's, a, it's a great project, and I think with just if the fishermen and the, the users have a little patience, I think they're going to find it's going to be well worth it when this project is done. I couldn't agree more with you, John. Thank you very much for the opportunity again. All right. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Bye-bye. Wow. Hey, that's exciting to, to get the launch ramp down here uh, finished. But uh, Stan, in, in the few minutes that I had in the segment, I want to talk to a little bit about some of the tournaments, that, uh, freshwater tournaments that are happening here in the, the southwest and Southern California and, and uh, uh, literally back east because West Coast fishermen are really making their marks on some of these events. Well, you had the posse kind of gathered up. It was a pretty tight grouping there uh, of West Coast guys that were in the top 10. I think 11th was the, uh, was the outside edge, and then what, four or five guys. Well, is, you know, that, that's when it comes to the top 12, which uh, Bassmasters, uh, they cut everyone down to on the last day. And, and we're talking about the, uh, the Bassmaster Elite event at Lake Martin, uh, where the winner of it, uh, and we've got to give him a big hand, was Takahiro Amore. He led the thing from wire to wire, and he, he literally slammed the field. He won by almost, uh, I think it was, uh, seven or eight pounds. And this was at an event that they had the most horrendous weather before pre-fishing, and when they got on the water, they were fishing uh, in milk chocolate water, but still the West Coast guys did really well. Well, that's really true. And took, you know, he did a great job uh, in in conditions. And and when you get milky water like that, reaction bait fishing, he just got onto him, and he got onto him pretty decently. Obviously, winning by eight pounds—that's a big one. That was a big one. Uh, he won the event with fifty-nine point eight pounds. And then, but let's uh, let's uh, focus a little bit on what the West Coast guys did and. Just a brief summary. You know, a couple of months ago, we had uh, Arizona fisherman Roy Hawk on with us, and he was debating whether or not he was going to fish the elites, not because he was worried about his capabilities, 
but the expense involved in doing that, as a matter of fact, before he had to make the final decision, Roy had a garage sale to raise enough money to, uh, you know, to make the entry fees, and sure enough, he did it. He uh, qualified for the elites. He got his entry fees in, and in his first event, out of the gate, he finishes in second place behind Takahiro with 52-8. Just, just an amazing story. You know, That's and awesome. it, it is. It's great. You know, the guys, you, it, the people that fish these events, the guys that are out there, and, and they really put their money where their mouth is. You know, I, I want to do this. I want to go here. I'm going to spend the money, and I'm going to compete in the arena. And sometimes they're down to the last nickel here. Uh, when you've got to do a garage sale to make your entry, and then you go there and, you, you know, you're crossing your fingers sometimes, hoping that your fishing holds up. But to have him come in second, he's paid for his events there for the year. He's good. He's going to be good. Hey, to uh, finish off uh, the Western guys that uh, finished in the top 12, we have uh, Luke Clausen out of the Pacific Northwest. He finished fifth, sixth place with Justin Lucas. Eighth place was Mark Menendez. Uh, he finished eighth. Our good friend D. Rojas, who we had on just a couple of weeks ago, you know, new boat sponsor, new motor sponsor. What a way to get out and show him exactly what you can do. He finished in 10th, and in 11th place was Brett Height. So West Coast Fishermen did really well back in Alabama. I'm telling you, that's, that's really good. you got Northern California, Arizona, and Southern California all grouped. You know, and it's pretty good. And then we want to move over to Lake Havasu. The FLW was just there at Lake Havasu, which is a, a big event for out here in the West. And we want to give congratulations to Sean Bailey. He uh, won that event at, uh, at 49.5, and that's a three-day tournament. And uh, Sean uh, won it by uh, just one pound. But, again, a lot of our local guys did well, Stan. You know, and you expect it, but I got to give Sean that a boy. You know, he's such a good friend. He and his brother grew up fishing against me and my brother, and and uh, and I've had a chance to help he and you know, the a lot of the young guys as they come through that stayed in the industry and kept fishing. So I'm really, really proud of Sean. He's he's such a great stick, and the win it was his first win in the FLW, and that's that's a big one. Big win, especially on your home lake. Boy, it's nice to be fishing a tournament where you go to sleep in your own bed and you've got your own support people there. Uh, so uh, congratulations to Sean. Uh, other guys you might know uh, that are somewhat local that finished uh, in that tournament was uh, David uh, Valdivi uh, from Norwalk. Uh, he finished second. Uh, Justin Kerr finished third. He's from Simi Valley. From Escondido, finishing sixth, Mr. Tom Leadham. Tom, great job, number eight. We've had him That's on the cool. show before. Joe Uribe, he uh, now hails out of Cottonwood, Arizona, but he's a local guy here for sure. And then finishing in 10th place, Jay Wright from Seal Beach. So, a boy, Jay. <laughs> our local guys did well. Hey, you know, just, it's, it's so cool. I, I'm sitting here smiling. You know, Joe Uribe and Justin Kerr. And John Bailey, I mean, Sean Bailey and the Bailey boys, they all, all grew up, we all fished in the same tournament. So they all grew up in our arena out here fishing against me and around me. And there's, it's really fun. And then Jay Wright is a longtime friend, uh, and he, he goes on some of my long-range stuff with the, uh, on the ocean with me also. So, you know, that's just a great group to have nailed down at that top end. It's always fun to see your, your uh, buddies win. 
Right, and just to round out a couple of the other tournaments, uh, National Bass West had a tournament at Otai. Fishing by himself, Ryan Calderon, he had a five-fish limit that went 23.06. And then up at uh, Lake uh, Castaic, uh, our good friend Bill Semitel and Ron Thompson, they had a five-fish limit. They won that event up there for National Bass West at 16.48. Drop shot fish inning in, in 15 to 30 feet of water, and, and Stan, uh, just before we go to break, uh, boy, with the mild weather we've been having right now when it comes to bass fishing, like you had mentioned last week, those fish are, are coming on up, and uh, it's a great time to be fishing. You know, it is, and it's, this is an odd year. The fish around the, uh, even up and down the coast are, are a little different this year, the way the ocean's already kind of doing some different stuff that freshwater fish we have not had a winter so it's january the end of january first part of february here and and we're looking at at warm water on lakes that are at uh, you know basically ocean level being in a situation where you could see a spawn the next moon <laughs> in a big one because the it was 60-degree water at Casitas this weekend. All right. Uh, hey, we're going to take a – Stan and Wendy, let's take a break right now. Uh, hey, coming up next, Captain James McDaniels, owner-operator of Grande Sports Fishing, has a big announcement, and we want to find out more about Grande Sports Fishing. Maybe uh, uh, Captain McDaniels, too, will give us a hint on what's happening off our local waters. So stay tuned. Stan, Wendy, and I will be back with more Rod and Reel Radio after these messages. Are you ready to sell your current boat and upgrade in preparation for the 2017 fishing season? It's sure to be one for the bucks. I'm Zach Zorn and a broker for Kessler Yachts located in San Diego. As one of the largest and most reputable brokerages on the West Coast, I can assure that your boat will be sold in a timely manner or that your dream boat will be found. If you want to sell your boat or looking to purchase one, call Zach Zorn at Kessler Yachts, 760-815-8866 so that your name can be added to our long list of satisfied buyers and sellers. That's Zach Zorn, 760-815-8866. If you're serious about your fishing, choosing the right tackle is one of the most important decisions you'll ever make. Iserline makes premium fishing lines including monofilament, Dacron, Spectra, fluorocarbon, battle-tested harnesses, and top-angler tested Iserline tools and accessories. Iserline premium fishing products are created to provide you with the ultimate in strength, dependability, durability, high abrasion resistance, low stretch, and high quality. All Iserline products are 100% guaranteed against manufacturing defects. You just can't buy better value. Iserline will replace or repair at their option. No questions asked if you're not pleased with any of their product. Catch what you've been missing. Quality guaranteed. The warm weather is here and our lakes and rivers are brimming. Just remember, if you love California and you love to boat, please wear your life jacket. And make sure everyone with you puts one on, too. Save the ones you love. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. Every serious angler knows that a quality hook is an important part of their arsenal. Gamakatsu hooks are made from high-grade carbon steel, specially heat-treated to make them light and extra strong, but not brittle. Gamakatsu ring hooks are made with a one-piece ring, no welds, no weak spots, a very smooth-moving ring. Gamakatsu offers a huge variety of hooks for all types of fishing. Live bait hooks, both light and heavy-duty, to four extra strong. Circle hooks, tuna hooks, ringed hooks, tuna doubles, and many more. Don't waste your next fishing trip on a cheap hook. Get Gamakatsu hooks at your favorite tackle store now. 
This portion of Rod and Reel Radio is brought to you by the Rockley's Fish Release System. Now you can quickly and easily release fish suffering from barotrauma back to the depths they were caught. Look or ask for the Rockley's at your local fishing tackle dealer. Hey, Stan, Wendy, and I, we want to welcome you back to Rod and Reel Radio. Hey, you know, one of, I think, the best fishing platforms in the fleet has made a little bit of a move. I asked the skipper to come aboard and uh, tell us just exactly all about that and let us know a little bit more about Grandy Sports Fishing. And with us is Captain James McDaniels. Captain, how you doing today, sir? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. How are you? Hey, Stan, Wendy, and I, we are doing great. Hey, but... uh, Captain James, I don't know whether to start off telling uh, you telling us a little bit about the boat or telling us a little bit about yourself. Why don't you give us a little background on yourself and how you got to this point in time? Well, a lot of people know the Grande as a overnight, uh, day and a half, multi day boat at Point Loma Sport Fishing, and uh, we uh, we've been running our trips out of there for over fifteen years. And an opportunity has come up next door at H&M Landing. There's a vacancy for the uh, three-quarter day run. And it's something that I've just kind of always wanted to do. Um, I've always enjoyed that type of fishing. I enjoy those type of trips. And I think that the Grande is a great boat for it because it's just, uh, you know, it's an 85-foot boat, 25 feet wide. And uh, it's got a big bunk room. It's got 60 bunks in it. And I really feel like uh, H&M Landing is just a real winner of a landing combined with a boat like mine. Uh, it's going to make a great three-quarter day experience for the anglers. So we jumped on that opportunity. We moved the boat over there last week. And uh, we're looking forward to a year of three-quarter day fishing and, and hopefully a long-term future for the boat over there at H&M running that type of trips. So we're going to be departing every morning at 5.30 a.m. and uh, getting back in the evening. So it is a nice, long, full day on the water. Um, Trips are going to be, you know, at the minimum 12 hours, probably up to 14 or 15 hours. So we'll be able to give everybody a bunk to take a nap in on the way out or the way in from the fishing grounds. And a nice big galley, you know, huge bait tank, fish hole, because we we used to run multi-day trips. So, uh, you know, we're... We're going to do what we can to make a better experience for the angler with that type of trip. Got to tell you that that's a great three-quarter day boat. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah, it's a, it's a, <laughs> that big is a really good it. three-quarter day boat. That's the best one I think on the on the coast. Yeah, I would agree with you there. It's uh, you know it, it's definitely going to improve. It's going to improve the fishery a lot, and I also think it's going to be better for the long-term future of my boat. That's why I'm doing it. I think that. Uh, you know, those those long runs up and down the coast and some weather, they take a toll on on a boat uh, over the years. And, and now we're going to be uh, putting it on a, a run where we're going out to the Coronado Islands or offshore tuna fishing in the summer if they show up. I, I really think that it's just going to be great for the Grande in general. Boy, don't you uh, wish that uh, we'll have a season like last season, especially the way the three-quarter day boats and to a certain extent, even the half-day boats for a little while were able to get on those fish. Uh, uh, what's happening out there right now? I know things have just kind of died down a little bit, but are there still yellowtail, do you think, and bluefin out there to be had? 
Oh, I'm sure that there are. We're we're not um, we're not fishing quite yet. There's been a few boats that have started their three quarter day season here in these past few days, and they've been catching rockfish so far. You got to remember that it is February, and yes, it, it was an amazing stretch of years, the Salvino period, with yellowtail just becoming the norm every single day, and then yellowfin tuna and dorado offshore. If we get some of that, that would just be great, and I'm sure we will get some shots at that. Um, but, you know, three-quarter day fishing in general out of San Diego has been very good at the Coronado Islands, and uh, we're looking forward to any kind of a continuation of that. And, you know, we do still have the bunks in the boat, and we are going to be running some day-and-a-half, some two-days, some two-and-a-half-day charters. Nice. So uh, we're looking at, uh, you know, all aspects of fishing like we used to do, plus utilizing this three-quarter day run when uh, – when the fish are on the bite. You know, it used to be uh, that uh, three-quarter day boat was just going up and down the coast and fishing coastal waters. And now with the new equipment that you have and, and uh, a, a lot of the boats have been repowered, uh, there's no onus going out on a three-quarter day trip. When you're in the season, you can do as well on a three-quarter day boat as you can in an overnight or even an extended trip. Yeah, I, I definitely think that that's true, especially in these last few years since, say, about 2014 or so. We've, you know, I've been I've been out there myself running overnight and day and a half trips, and there's plenty of times where we're not only fishing with the three quarter day boats, we're getting you know real good competition from the three quarter day boats. Uh, you know, we we were travel travel out at night uh, and shut down where we think the fish are, and just kind of take it from there. And who really knows what we were passing up, you know, on the way out, where they're heading out at daylight, and a lot of times they would find fish on the way out, and we would end up having to work back in towards them. So they've had a phenomenal stretch of years. If, if we get lucky and get a year or two like they had, I, you know, I couldn't ask for any more. But uh, we'll just take it as it comes, and we're going to hope for the best that it's another good year of local fishing. Yeah. Especially when it comes to amenities, uh, the Grande has a, a galley that can accommodate a lot of people comfortably. Uh, you're gonna you cook great food in there, so people are going to be able to fish if they bring uh, you know friends with them that aren't fishermen. They're still going to have a a place to stay that that's comfortable. Uh, and then when it comes to being a fishing platform, if you like throwing iron. I don't think there's a, a better fish, uh, a better boat in the fleet than the Grande. Yeah, no, it's a big, big roomy boat. The, you know, the, the the space between the rail and the galley going all the way around the boat is over four feet. You know, there's plenty of room for a lot of people. Uh, we are making some improvements to the boat. We're actually working on that right now. Uh, I was down there working today. We're adding another head, a restroom. We're adding another one to the boat. We do feel like we're probably going to carry more people than we used to. We used to take about 30 people on our day and a half. So our uh, our three-quarter day trips, we're going to be taking more people. So we're adding another restroom to the boat. We're making sure that we can utilize all of our bunks, which my goal is to be able to provide a bunk for every single passenger on board, and we, we are going to do that. And you're right, our galley's huge. We have two levels of seating. We have an upper and a lower galley with seating for over 35 people. So when you come out with us on one of our trips, what we're trying to do is not only 
make it so you really enjoy your day of fishing. But because, like you said, we have the option of going pretty far offshore now, a three-quarter day trip will commonly fish 35, 40, even 50 miles from San Diego. So there is a pretty good chance you're looking at a four- to five-hour ride home. And we don't want you just sitting back there by the bait tank cooking in the sun with, you know, the breeze hitting you. We want you to be able to kick back and relax and enjoy the ride in. So we've got the bunk room. We've got the big galley. We're adding another restroom, so we'll have uh, three nice heads, two of which with showers. We're uh, looking to uh, really make a nice three-quarter-day boat here. Nice. How, how long is the Grundy? How big is the Grundy? 85 feet, 25 feet wide. Nice. It is. It is really good. Now, Captain McDaniels, when do you plan on going online and uh, at least uh, uh, posting what your schedule is going to be so people can find out what the Grande is all about? I know uh, we've got Day at the Docks coming on up on, I believe it's April 15th, and I know you'll probably be open then for people to come on down to say hello, but uh, when do you expect to get online? Uh, well, we've got to apply for a few new permits, which are um, not new to the fleet, but they're new to us because we've only just been doing an offshore schedule with the boat up until this year. So there is a different permit that I have to apply for to be able to fish the Coronado Islands, and that does have a little bit of a turnaround time on it. So we're thinking about m- around May 1st, somewhere between May 1st and May 15th, we'd like to be ready. Um, we've got this, uh, you know, this Boatwork project we're working on while we're waiting for our permit. We've got things pretty torn up right now, but it's all going to come together beautifully by day at the docks. And uh, as soon as we know more with that permit, we're going to put some trips online at hmlanding.com. That would be the best place to look. Or you can just give them a call there at the office at 619-222-1144, and uh, we should have a daily schedule up somewhere around that time. Now, there isn't any chance you're going to be in any type of a, a competition when you get over at H&M with uh, that guy that runs uh, the Sea Adventure 80, is it? <laughs> I wouldn't call that competition. <laughs> no, I'm, just I'm just kidding. We, we have a great working relationship, and uh, he helps me a lot. I think I'd like to think that I help him out a lot, both in fishing and in business. And uh, he definitely was a lot of... Uh, helpful support uh during this business move that i just made and uh, i'm actually tied up right next to him right now we're sharing a dock so that, it's actually really nice to be uh, on the same dock okay, okay everybody should know by the way scott mcdaniels is dead that guy we're talking about <laughs> that other guy <laughs> that hey, other guy <laughs> captain mcdaniels thanks a lot for being with us and we look forward to Seeing you at Day at the Docks, if not before, but better yet, getting aboard and fishing with you. It's going to be a lot of fun this year. Thank you very much. We look forward to seeing you guys at H&M Landing. All right. Hey, hey Wendy, I, I was intrigued. You took a little trip, and, man, I, I don't know what, what got into you, but you're freshwater fishing. You're down at uh, Pismo, which means the probably the clam population was decimated again. I, I don't know. Tell Tell us a little bit about your trip. Uh, well, I actually, it, you know, it's a horrible job, but somebody has to do it. And I had to go visit my account. <laughs> All right. And it just so happened I went to go visit Taco Warehouse. I had never been there before. 
And then I went to go visit Turner Salinas because they just opened. And, you know, I just decided that, hey, I'm going to go do some fishing while I'm out here. So I thought I'd go look for some stripers but didn't see any. And so I did a, you know, fish, surfish for only a, an hour or so. And then uh, went to go meet a friend up in uh, somebody I grew up with. And he was in a meeting, so I decided, well, I'm going to go to Santa Margarita Lake and wait it out and hang out and do some fishing. <laughs> so I did. And then we ended up meeting at Pismo. All right. Man, what a trip. Now, uh, you were fishing at, uh, at Santa Margarita. Uh, what were you doing, and uh, what seemed to be working best for you? Well, you know, it was actually a pretty bright, sunny day, so I decided to walk the shoreline and fish. Uh, on the shady side, so I fished all the shade pockets, and I was fishing a Yamamoto creature bait, watermelon red flake, and then also a green pumpkin, and uh, I, I fished out on a weepless redhead, and it's just dragging it on the bottom and caught some fish. It was pretty fun. Oh, man. That sounds good to me. That, you know, there's nothing better than pulling up to a lake you weren't expecting to be there. Say, hey, I've got a little time. Bring out the rod and reel. That's why you should always have a rod and reel with you. And some tackle and just get on out there and, uh, yeah, get on the shady side of the lake, throw a couple of lures, and even if you don't catch fish, it's going to be good therapy for you. Yeah, no kidding. And then I ran across about, I don't know, about 30 or 40 clothes. Of course, it's after the season, and it was at a county lake, so I couldn't do anything about it. But it was pretty cool. They were chirping away and making all kinds of noise, and it was just a nice day. I had a great time, and I love being spontaneous. All right. Hey, well, guys, let's take a break right now. Hey, but we've got a special guest coming up in the uh, the next hour. And Stan, I know you probably know him, and Wendy, I don't know if you're old enough to remember him. I'm sure you are, but... I'm sure you have fished with Lourdes that has his name. His name's Al Kalen, and uh, he had Kalen Lourdes. He's also a writer. Stan, I'm sure you used a Kalen lure or two in your lifetime. You know, uh, there might be still bags of them in the garage. <laughs> if, if you were around and you were looking for a, uh, a larger grub with a tail that would move, Kalen's were where you went to. I mean, that was just part of the deal. If you needed something to thump, that was a great grub. All right. Well, coming up next, not only uh, a former lure manufacturer, Al Kalen from Kalen Lures, but also a writer, and we're going to talk a little bit about his new book, Outdoor Tales. That's going to be coming up in the second hour, so stay tuned. If you guys are old enough to remember Kalen Lures and have fished with them, you're going to want to listen to this. If you aren't old enough or have never fished with a Kalen lure, i got to tell you, you really missed out. So stay tuned. Stan, Wendy, and I will be back after these messages.
can count on El Cajon Ford, as so many Southern Californians have for years. El Cajon Ford has the cars and trucks you can count on, like the all-new Fusion and Escape, Edge, Explorers, and more. And now, Fiestas with 38 MPG and Focus with 40 miles per gallon highway, plus C-Max Energy with up to 42 highway EPA estimates. El Cajon Ford has them now. Shop online at ElCajonFord.com. Choose from hundreds of your favorite F-Series trucks, too. El Cajon Ford knows trucks, no matter what you're hauling or towing, for a great weekend of fishing or for some fun in the desert. Now get special savings on every F-Series truck in stock, 150s, 250s, 350s, at El Cajon Ford. We have commercial trucks, too, including the all-new Transit Connect. Finally, a commercial van with great mileage, helping your business get moving again. El Cajon Ford, worth the short drive from anywhere in Southern California, Broadway and East Main at El Cajon, or online anytime, anywhere at El Cajonford.com. He's not just my fishing buddy. After 30 years, he's a brother, and I'd sure hate to lose him. His bass boat's got nothing to do with it. So I make sure both of us wear a life jacket. Save the ones you love, even if they don't own a fancy boat. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. Quantum Fishing's got something for everybody. From the smallest angler to the oldest veteran, we can get you out there fishing with the greatest reels on the market today. From the all-new for 2016 Icon PT, to the Tour Mag, to the brand new redesigned Smoke Reel, we've got something for everyone in your family. Have some fun. Take a kid fishing. They're the future of our sport. Quantum, we are performance-tuned. You can get your Quantum products at anglersarsenal.com or anglersarsenal in the Mesa at 619-466-8355. Attention Rod and Reel Radio listeners, be sure to check out the Code Group mobile app. You can listen to the Rod and Reel Radio show live along with show archives without internet access. The Code Group app has all kinds of cool features for fishermen including daily Southern California saltwater reports, weather reports, episodes of inside sport fishing, marine traffic, and much more. Get the free Code Group mobile app by texting the word REEL, R-E-E-L, to 90407, or enter the words code group in the App Store on your smartphone. It's a big deal, you know. I've always wanted to be on Rod and Reel Radio Line. <laughs> <laughs> I won the Bassmaster Classic. I did a, a McDonald's commercial, but now I know I've made it. I fulfilled my dream. <laughs> that is just absolutely awesome. Stan Vandenberg, Wendy Toshihara, and myself, Hopalong John Cassidy, we want to welcome you to the second hour of Rod and Reel Radio. Hey, this is a fellow that I have admired and known for a long time. He was, he was making lures way back when, who knows, Moses was fishing the Red Sea, for all I know. <laughs> he, uh, he built himself one heck of a lure company, and since then, he... Uh, has also been writing. He wrote for one of the local newspapers out in the Imperial Valley area. Sorry, never got a chance to see any of those, but you can read some of his uh, work now. And a new book that he's produced, Outdoor Tales. Let's welcome to Rod Real Radio, Mr. Al Kalen. Al, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be on your show. Well, I can't tell you how happy I am to have you, Al. You know, uh, Stan Vandenberg, and let me please introduce you to Wendy Toshihara. Hi. You know, you I may be only in my 50s, but, you know, John and Stan, I sure have my share of feelings in my bag. <laughs> Don't we all? You know, I guess, Al, just to start it off, how can a young kid 
that grew up uh, in the canals of, uh, you know, Imperial Valley there. Just how did it evolve into what we know today or what we knew at that time as being Kalen Lures? Tell, tell us a little bit about the history of, of how you got to that uh, point in time. Well, I guess the easiest way to explain it is a hobby that kind of ran amok. Uh, I, <laughs> I can agree with that. <laughs> I, uh, I've always enjoyed fishing and uh, in, in the outdoors, and uh, I know at an early age uh, uh, at our, our feedlot where we, we fed cattle, we had a stock pond, and I was always fishing in it, seeing what I could fish and catch. And uh, that was the testing ground. A, yep. You know, I, I ordered a, a sinker mold and uh, uh, started casting sinkers when I was six, seven, eight years old in the, the backyard uh, using our barbecue to, to melt lead in the, <laughs> the dog food can and pointers in the, the sinker molds and trying to sell that door to door, and that didn't work. But the the... Salton Sea uh, started blooming, and, and the Corvina fishing was fantastic. And there was a, a opportunity to start building fishing rigs for the fishermen to to use uh, with live bait, mainly mud suckers. So I started manufacturing them. I bought the components. I think when I was about twelve, from the herders' catalog, the old catalog that had uh, just about everything a, an outdoorsman could could ever want. And uh, my grandmother used to drive me around the sea, and uh, I'd stop at all the dealers and had a little display that I'd put the, the leaders on and, and the, the rigs. And um, Then it just it blossomed from one thing to another. I was trying to find a, a, a wholesale company that would sell to me, but uh, they wouldn't. Uh, I was real interested. There was a, a real popular lure called Fin Fins made by Storm. Yep. And uh, they, they worked very well for Corvina. And I, I got to looking at them real close in, the, in a swimming pool, and I could see they had a real tight wiggle. And so I started looking for lures that had tight wiggles. And uh, uh, a lot of the swim baits that were available then had great big tails, and they had a big slow floppy wiggle in their tail and and uh, I finally found one back in Alabama <clears throat> that uh, had a real thin tail and it had a tight wiggle so I ordered some lo and behold they worked fantastic on Corvina and so I started buying them from this uh, manufacturer back there and and uh, he uh, he'd ship them out to me and we'd package them and sell them around the sea and they one one long and they'd taken over the sales of, of fin fins and that upset the storm company a little bit. Um, but we we continued to to sell them and they were very very popular. And I got a phone call one day from the manufacturer. He said, uh, I "Hate to tell you this, but I just went bankrupt." And uh, I said, "Well, where am I going to get my my swim baits?" And he said, well, why don't you get in an airplane and come back here and look at our factory? Maybe you'll buy it. So I just jumped on an airplane and went back back in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and uh, 
looked at the factory and it was a mess. I couldn't believe that you could make lures with equipment like that. <laughs> but we we agreed upon a, a very cheap price, and I, I uh, phoned one of the local uh, produce companies that were shipping lettuce uh, to that area uh, during that period and asked them if they had any trucks in the area that could load up a worm squirt in the factory. And uh, they called me back and said, yeah, yeah, there's one there now. And so I gave them the address, and before long he backed up, and there was an old dilapidated forklift in the factory, and we loaded everything up, including the forklift, finally. And uh, uh, I jumped on the airplane, and the truck headed back home, and we got back and unloaded everything, and <clears throat> the fellow that had the company, he came back for a couple of weeks and helped me set up and get going and taught me how to make plastic and stuff like that. And it just, we started making the swim baits. And as we were doing that, and he was telling me, you know, all about how you, how you inject plastic lures, he, he mentioned that it was very difficult to inject a three-color bait. And I said, well, let's think about it. You know, maybe we can come up with a, an injection machine that will do that. So we, we put our heads together, and uh, at night when we finished working, we'd sit around the coffee table and talk about it. And we came up with a, a method of doing it. And at that time, nobody else was injecting a three-color plastic lure, and we, we came out with what we call the triple threat grub, um, and it was a, a big success, and then we used that same technique for a, a, a finesse worm we, we made called the western worm, and uh, it, we had a little two-inch grub that was extremely popular for crappie fishing, and uh, one thing just led to another, and people would say, well, we, you know, there's, there's a need for this type of lure, so I'd play around and come up with a design, and, and uh, it was fun, you know, really a, a lot of fun during that time, uh, designing those lures, and, in, in, you know, in, in order to design them, you, you had to learn a little bit about jewelry making, uh, because uh, the molds that you used um, for your prototypes uh, you can make with jewelry making material and uh, so I learned to do that and, uh, we, you know it just evolved yeah uh, al uh, you know I know the you know the the freshwater stuff and everything was great and I know we've all used that lures but tell us a little bit about the evolution of some of the saltwater stuff especially like the the nine-inch Magambo grub and the big ten-inch twin tail uh, scampi. Now, those are not lures that you'll be using uh, in Alabama or Texas or anything else like that. Wh where did the need come up for these lures, and how did these lures come about? Well, we I, I like fishing in San Diego Bay, and, and the reason I like that so much is because I'm prone to seasickness. I mean, I can't even take a bath without adrenaline. And so I, I, I spent a lot of time in San Diego Bay, you know, 
fishing and, and really enjoyed it. And uh, at the tackle shows, I'd run into uh, the owners of uh, uh, Scampy Lures, Joe Graves and Lori. Right. And uh, we became friends because we were usually in booths next to each other. And, and um, so they would invite me up fishing, and, and we'd go out on the bay and fish. And, and it wasn't long until um, I was using my grubs and catching as many fish as Joe was and Lori. Well, with their, their scampy tails, and um, they were getting to the point where they wanted to retire, and so we put our heads together and came up with a business deal, and so I, I bought them out, and we started manufacturing the scampy twin tails, uh, which had been so popular, and, and, and I think one of the first hard pla- or soft plastic baits that uh, was on the market commercially in the southern california area and uh they had a great big one uh, a, a big 10 inch uh tail that uh, was popular in alaska uh for for halibut fishing and so i thought well if that works maybe a, a single tail grub would work and so i designed one and uh, it, it was fantastic and then i made a uh, a, a larger grub than our regular 5-inch. I called it a Mogombo. It was a 6-inch uh, grub, and that became a real uh, real good producer in, in the inshore fishing uh, market. So it just evolved like that. We, we had a lot of customers in Alaska for the halibut uh, uh, bait, our big 10-inch grub, and the scampy double tails. The longline fishermen would use them a lot uh, in season. So it, just one thing led to another, and then we, as we we started selling across the United States and branching out, uh, you know, we found application for lures in, in the Gulf and, and then on the East Coast in, in saltwater uh, uses. Well, then, also, did you uh, besides having the line of plastics you also had a great line of uh, uh of lead heads and i know probably one of the premier dart heads in the country you you originally came out with it, it was a a great lead head yeah um and i i i can uh, say that uh, joe graves was the one that taught me all about that um uh, he, he, he the method of, of casting them. I mean, uh, I, I came up before we made a deal with Scampi. I was making a, a darter head uh, that was uh, very popular, and, and I think the key to that was using real good hooks. Uh, not very many darter heads had good hooks at the time, and the, the black nickel finish was just coming out. And it had a point on it that you know you didn't have to sharpen your hooks anymore. And, and, uh, and, and so it was an instant bestseller. Uh, and but we had these aluminum molds that I was making uh, to cast those with, and it took a lot of labor. And when uh, Joe Graves um, started helping me with uh, after we bought the, the Scampi company, he says, "You know, you ought to you ought to make them like we make them, and our, our leadheads." And, he showed me how he did that with a uh, method called spin casting. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you can make 30 or 40 at a whack. And uh, I said, boy, that's, that's pretty neat. So I immediately made a mold uh, for our darter head jigs, and I was producing 60 or 70 uh, every two or three minutes. You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you were, so, you were located there in the Imperial Valley. Uh, that's the least likely a spot that I would think a, a major lure uh, a manufacturer for freshwater would would locate. Uh, why why the Imperial Valley, and what kind of facility did you have? Well, I, I'm a farmer, a rancher. Um, we had a feedlot. We, we fed cattle for the market, and uh, the, the cattle prices were not doing well, and uh, we weren't as successful and uh raising cattle as we were in farming so we we quit uh we we, we closed up the feedlot so we had this big warehouse that we stored grain in it was about 12,000 square feet and so as things became our lures became more popular we kind of turned that warehouse into a packaging facility and 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 a manufacturing facility uh, and plus our offices, all inside that, that big warehouse. And uh, so it was just where we lived, you know. Um, it, I know it sounds kind of funny, but, yeah, we were inside a grain warehouse uh, manufacturing all these things. And, um, sometimes we were running, you know, 24 hours a day to keep up with orders. Um <laughs> Al, I remember the uh, first time I met you, uh, you uh, invited me to come up to see your facility. And at that time, I was doing Western Plastics. And I thought, yeah, you know, we ran uh, a pretty decent operation with uh, four or five uh, 55-gallon drums a month and a hand-pour operation. I was thinking, I'm I'm looking for somewhere to to get uh, my plastic from, and uh, maybe uh, I could learn something. And I went and visited you and found out you were blending your own plastics, and you had such high volumes that the plastic was coming in in these tanker trucks. You were uh, uh, running uh, uh, so many lures. Well, that, that's, that's correct. Um, and, you know, I, <clears throat> I was lucky to the, the person that I bought the company from uh, taught me a lot about uh, what it took to, to make plastic, but... One of the one of the problems was that it it uh, uh, smelled uh, the 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 baits from back in in uh, the east of Alabama in that area that, sure. where, where a lot of lot of them were made. They had a bad odor to them, and one of, one of the uh, there was an oil that they put in the in the plastic, and um, it it had a kind of a kerosene odor to it. Um, and I thought, man, that's kind of repugnant. And so when we got the, the factory set up out here, I started looking for a, a source of, of this particular oil um, and found it and ordered it, and it smelled even worse. <laughs> uh, back in the East, they used the... Uh, um, an oil that was produced in the Gulf that uh, uh, that was of a, a different type than the oil produced on the the West Coast was a napoline based oil. So 
so I had to keep looking, and I ended up with a, a another oil that has no application at all to what the other oils used, but it had a high flash point, which, which we were looking for, and, and it had it was was basically odorless, and so it it gave a good smell to our plastic. It didn't didn't repel fish, and uh, during the time I I know that. Uh, our, our western worms uh, were competing against uh, uh, a lot of products, and uh, uh, they they had a smell that was different, you know. And, and I think that was the reason that, that they caught fish so well. You no, know, and uh, just to add that story, one of the big manufacturers of plastics that I know you would recognize them today. One of the reasons why they first came out with scented lures was to mask that smell that Al is talking about, and that's kind of like uh, the way scented lures uh, got involved. But. Well, that's where that grapes and, and cherries and cinnamon uh, and, and uh, licorice, you know, the anise became famous for because that was the fish attractant. It was just the, the attractant would just block the odor of whatever you were fishing. That's right. Hey, Al, can you stay with us a little bit longer? we got to take a break. Sure. Yeah, we're speaking to uh, Al Kalen. Uh, he's the Kalen from Kalen Lords. I know you all recognize that name. We're going to talk to him uh, a little bit here. I, I want to ask him a little bit about the uh, Salton Sea, and then we're also going to talk to him about his book, Outdoor Tales. So stay tuned. Stan, Wendy, myself, and our special guest, Al Kalen. We'll be back after these messages. I like rafting. I love whitewater. But I never forget that snowmelt in the river can cause cold water shock. I wear a life jacket always. Anyone with me has got to do the same. Save the ones you love. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. Gamakatsu hooks are made from high-grade carbon steel specially heat treated to make them light and extra strong but not brittle. The Gamakatsu sharpening process is the most modern in the world and results in a perfectly conical point that is unequaled in sharpness. Gamakatsu offers a huge variety of hooks for all types of fishing, drop shot, extra wide gap, worm hooks, finesse wide gap, and a lot more. Gamakatsu has a hook for whatever style of fishing you want to do. Don't waste your time on a cheap hook. Ask for Gamakatsu hooks at your favorite tackle store now. Hey everybody, this is a message for our listeners from a new Baja Magic Lodge at Cedros Island. Cedros Outdoor Adventures wants to make your dream of fish at Cedros Island a reality. Want to go after giant calicos or yellowtail with the best Cedros Island fishing organization, but you just don't know who to contact? Then give Cedros Outdoor Adventures a call at 619-793-5419, or even better yet, log on to their informative website at cedrosoutdooradventures.com. There you can visit their trip calendar and schedule a trip that's convenient for you. Once again, the phone number is 619-793-5419 or their website of cedrosoutdooradventures.com. I got a garage full of fishing tackle, and every time I get out on the water, I realize I forgot something important. But I never forget my life jacket. I make sure my buddies wear theirs, too. Save the ones you love. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. Hi, it's Tony Gwynn. Nobody treats you better. Nobody beats El Cajon Ford. Nobody beats El Cajon Ford. 
Hi, it's Tony Gwynn Jr. For years, my dad said it so often. Nobody beats El Cajon Ford, and nobody treats you better. And that's so true. Now I am proud to join the El Cajon Ford team because with them, it's all about family. They treat you right. You're part of our family at El Cajon Ford. Thanks, Tony. We'll see you at Broadway in East Main and ElCajonFord.com. Hey, Stan, Wendy, and I, we want to welcome you back to Ron Real Radio. We also want to welcome our special guest for this hour, Mr. Al Kalen. And, Al, thank you for giving up some of your Sunday to be with us. Yeah, it's great. I'm glad I could uh, be on your show. Hey, you know, Al, I know growing up there in the Imperial Valley, and you were mentioned it as a kid, there was a body of water there that you just loved uh, that, you know, you would play around with. It. That was like your testing ground for a long time. That was the Salton Sea. It always seemed like the Salton Sea was kind of an enigma to the California Department of uh, Fish and Game and now the Fish and Wildlife, uh, where before they, they never knew what fish to stock in there. I mean, as I understand it, they tried to stock trout. They tried to start, stock uh, stripers, uh, largemouth bass, uh, uh, sturgeon. You know, they had crappie and panfish. Uh, they could They could never... Get it to take. Uh, one of the things I was amazed about is I never realized, even though we've done a show on the Salton Sea, just how huge that body of water once was. Can you can you tell us a little bit about the Salton Sea? Sure, be glad to. You know, it it's it's part of the Sea of Cortez um, before the Colorado River was formed. Um, the, the two continents are splitting, or the, the tectonic plates are moving, splitting California apart, and that's what causes the, the, the Sea of Cortez uh, as it splits apart. Um, and so as the Colorado River formed, it, it dumped all, all kinds of silt into the Sea of Cortez and built a barrier across it, uh, and that is what our area is now it's below sea level because it's dried up but over the years uh, over millions of years uh, as the Colorado River flooded at times it would break its banks and flow in flow downhill uh, below sea level and fill up and it turned into a gigantic freshwater lake that went from downtown Palm Springs all the way to the delta of the Sea of Cortez 150 miles over 50 miles wide, and you can still see the, the old water line as you come down Highway 86 from uh, Indio uh, along the Salton Sea. You'll see a black line along the mountains, and that was the, uh, the elevation of that sea or freshwater lake uh, many times when it filled up. It was about 40 feet above sea level because the delta was that high, so the water would fill up the sea and then flow through the delta through the cattails and sloughs and all that. And then the river would change course, and um, the Colorado River would change course, and, and uh, no water would flow in, and, and it would dry up slowly. But 75% of the time over the millennia, this, this thing was full of fresh water. Um, and now that there's control of the, the river with dams, uh, it, it dried up. In 2000 or, or 1902, uh, they put in a canal gate 
to bring water into the Imperial Valley and start farming there, which is all below sea level. All the water ran downhill, and that's what formed the Salton Sea. It's mainly farm runoff uh, from our fields uh, that fills up the sea nowadays, and since there's no outlet, uh, we have a tremendous amount of evaporation, six to seven feet a year from the high heat that we have. So it just gets saltier and saltier and saltier. Fishing game thought, well, let's stock it. This was in the 50s. So they went down to San Felipe and netted all the fish they could find and brought them, put them in a truck and brought them up, dumped it in the sea. And uh, I think there's over 40 or 50 different varieties. Uh, before that, I think in 1917, they... They shipped uh, 20,000 silver salmon from San Francisco and turned them loose in the sea, never to be seen again. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the, the three fish that, that survived was a sargo and a croaker and, and the orange mouth corvina in the Salton Sea. And uh, they, the, the croaker and sargo created uh, uh, bait or food for the corvina. And the thing just bloomed, and it became the most successful fishery in the United States as far as, you know, pounds of fish per hour you could catch and the number, of, you know, the number of fish you could catch. Huge bait schools and huge schools of fish chasing the bait. And if you had something that you could throw like a, a little kicktail in there, you would. it was just tons of fun. Or any, anything was uh, an early jerk bait worked really good. Yeah, I mean, just a hook. I mean, <laughs> yeah, true. We, That's good we used to make leaders. Well, some of our leaders, we had gold-plated hooks on. You know, that was the best uh, res- salt-resistant hook there was, was gold plating. And sometimes you'd lose your bait, and next thing you know, you had another bite, you know, and, and, and they'd just bite the gold color on the hook. Now, Al, I understand uh, the tilapia wasn't originally planted in the um, in the lake, but uh, other you, the farmers were, would use the tilapia to eat the vegetation in the canals. And then when the canals started draining into the lake, that's how the tilapia got into the lake. Is, is that true? Well, partially, yes. Um, the Imperial Irrigation District that, that delivers the water to all the farmers here in the Imperial Valley is 500,000 acres. Uh, the largest irrigation district in the world, 1,400 miles of, of uh, lateral canals to, to deliver the water to the fields. Um, they had a problem with hydrilla in the, in the 60s, and uh, it was plugging up their canals, and so the uh, state fishing game said uh, tilapia can solve that problem. So the state planted the tilapia in the canals. Uh, unknown to them, tilapia don't like current, so they all washed down sea hill and, and uh, ended up in the Salton Sea. Um, and that, <laughs> that didn't work out so good. Um, and they said, well, don't worry, you know, the tilapia won't be able to survive in the salt water. Um, I happened to be uh, standing in the India Ocean on the east coast of Africa, 1971, and I'm thinking, those fish just look like tilapia swimming by me, you know, and they were. And that, that's where these fish came from. And so I thought, well, they're going to do real well in the Salton Sea. And as it turns out, they were the, the last thing standing. Uh, and there's still tilapia in, in the Salton Sea, but they're, 
just this last year they were not able to reproduce and so uh, that fishery was slowly declining and, and the birds that fed on the uh, tilapia are starting to leave the area because there's no fish left or small fish that they can eat it's just a larger fish and i guess that's that's a big concern uh, uh not only to the people in the area but the california department of fish and wildlife that it was a bird refuge for millenniums and it was the stop off point from south america to north america and uh you know, the department wanted to make sure that there was a viable fish population in that lake so that it could support uh, that aviary. But, you know, tell us what's happening to the lake now and why. Well, um, we're, we're starting to, as of 2003, the agreement was signed uh, between... San Diego uh, County Water Authority and, and then Trail Irrigation District to transfer water from our fields over to San Diego so you people wouldn't run out of water. Um, and and we also, the Metropolitan Water District in L.A. also uh, transfers water also. Um, so when that happened, um, we didn't have the amount of runoff coming across our fields after we irrigated to, to maintain the sea at a constant level, so it became to, it began to recede, and uh, now as farming practices have changed, and, and the key word is, is uh, you know, farm with less water, uh, uh, conservation efforts, and all that. Well, we 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 use a lot less water than we have in the past. There, there's there's a whole new trend of new vegetables that we grow. I mean, when you go to the store now, there's a whole section of bagged lettuce that you buy ready to eat, and we grow that here mm-hmm. uh, during the winters. Uh, and so that uses less water, and we're starting to use more sprinkler systems and drip irrigation systems. Uh, I, I grow onions, and I use a drip system on that. We use about one-seventh amount of water that we have in the past. So all that means that less water is being used, and less water goes in the salt sea, so it's starting to recede. And they're trying to figure out how to, how to solve that problem, or how to maintain something that's viable for the birds and, and all the other things that live around it. And that's a real, real problem. They... They're going to build some ponds at the south end of the sea. Uh, uh, the state has taken over that project, and they're working on it now. Uh, but that's two or three years down the road before they even get started. Um, I, I think it's also important to remember that although, although there's more birds that come through the Imperial Valley than anywhere else in the world during their migration, over 400 species, or anywhere else in the United States, um, the 400-plus species that come through here, uh, not that many of them use the salt and sea. I mean, there's a great deal of them do, and it's very important. But um, I think just as important is the agriculture and the water that, that uh, is used to irrigate those fields creates habitat in the drains, in the fields, there's food, water, habitat all around the Salton Sea, so the, the, the saltwater-living birds have the Salton Sea. All the rest of the birds have 
the million acres that on both ends of the Salton Sea, the Coachella Valley, the Imperial Valley, the Mexicali Valley, the Palo Verde Valley. Um, so it's a tremendous uh, reservoir of food and habitat and roosting areas for the migration and uh, very important. So they're, they're trying everything they can to, to try to uh, find a happy medium uh, that they can work with the amount of water that's going to be available in the future, and that will probably decline um, uh, as as conservation efforts increase. Uh, we've, we've more or less picked all the low-hanging fruit so far to conserve water, and so the next steps become very expensive. Um, but that's that's kind of a short uh, rundown of what's what's happening there. Well, are, are we just stalling the inevitable? You, you have indicated that the Salton Sea is, is literally an ancient body of water and has been subject to many different levels. At, do you believe there were times in history where it just completely dried up and then it came back again? Or are, is the water level now at a, at a record low and, and this is why we have the problems we have there? Well, it's, yeah, in the past, before man arrived here, or, or the, the come, not, I'm talk, not talking of the Native Americans, but when right. the first surveyors came across the area in 1855, they were looking for a, a route for a railroad in southern, a, a warm, warmer climate for a railroad that didn't get snowed in in the winter. And they came across the Pearl Valley and realized that, uh, Wow, it's below sea level, and the soil is beautiful for growing things. If you could get water there, you know, it would be fantastic. Um, and and the, the engineer that was in charge of the survey crew, he, he actually grew up plans of how to do it, and um, he, he died before it all came to fruition. They had to pay for the Civil War and, and all those things. Um, but over the years... The sea has flooded before man came numerous times, you know, 75% of the time, like I said, it was full of water. Uh, we, the first water came into the Imperial Valley to irrigate with in, in 1903. In, in, in 1890, uh, there was a natural flood that filled the, the area up uh, to 100,000 acres. You know, that's compared to the current salt and say that's 236,000 acres. So it was a half the size in, in uh, uh, 1890 as, as it is today. Uh, that's, that's pretty remarkable. Yet when they, 10 years later, when they brought water in, it was dry because it had evaporated that, that quickly wow. um, because of the high heat that we, we have. Hey, Al, we've got to take a break. Is there any way I can ask you to stay on for one more segment? And I want to talk about, you know, you as a writer and your book. Certainly. I'd be glad to. All right. You're listening to Rod and Real Radio on AM540 or at rodandreelradio.com. Stay tuned. Stan, Wendy, and I and our special guest, Al Kalin, will be back after this break.
Every serious angler knows that a quality hook is an important part of their arsenal. Gamakatsu hooks are made from high-grade carbon steel, specially heat-treated to make them light and extra strong, but not brittle. Gamakatsu ring hooks are made with a one-piece ring, no welds, no weak spots, a very smooth-moving ring. Gamakatsu offers a huge variety of hooks for all types of fishing. Live bait hooks, both light and heavy-duty, to four extra strong. Circle hooks, tuna hooks, ringed hooks, tuna doubles, and many more. Don't waste your next fishing trip on a cheap hook. Get Gamakatsu hooks at your favorite tackle store now. The warm weather is here and our lakes and rivers are brimming. Just remember, if you love California and you love to boat, please wear your life jacket. And make sure everyone with you puts one on, too. Save the ones you love. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. Hey, bass fishermen. Who do you call for your bass boat insurance? Well, if you're not calling me at 1-800-BASS-BOAT for your boat insurance, you're probably paying too much and may not have the coverage that you need. In 1974, I developed the bass boat program it is what all the pros use today. The reason? No depreciation or any partial claim for your hull, your big motor, your trolling motor, or your electronics until your boat's 10 years old. That's right. You only pay $250 to get your boat on the water for any partial claim, and we still pay a stated value replacement cost for your boat if you have a total loss. We're the only people in the industry that does that, and that's why we are the choice of the pros. So if you want the best, forget the rest. Just call 1-800-BASSBOAT. Call 1-800-227-7262 or just spell BASSBOAT. 1-800-BASSBOAT. I know there's too many letters, but the T is free and the call's on me. That's 1-800-BASSBOAT, the choice of the pros for bass boat insurance. For more information, log on to 1-800-BASSBOAT.com. Rod and Reel Radio is now available as a podcast you can subscribe to on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. Get notified as soon as new episodes are available, or go back and listen to our past shows. Browse through all of our archive shows at roddenreelradio.com slash archives, and click the subscribe button to get started listening now. Stan, Wendy, and I, we want to welcome you back to Rod and Reel Radio, and we want to ask you to stay listening to Rod and Reel Radio, because in the coming weeks... We are going to have a great promotion that we're putting together with Connection to Cruise Travel Service to send two people to the Occidental Papagaya Lodge in beautiful Costa Rica. So stay tuned. We're putting the package together for you. And this summer, two of you just might be flying to Costa Rica. So stay tuned. That's a cool deal. Yeah. Hey, welcome back to Rod and Real Radio with our special guest, Al Kalen. Al, you know, I've known you for a long time. I didn't know that you were a writer. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got started in that, and tell us more about your new book, Outdoor Tales, how that came about. Well, I've always, you know, growing up, I I had a, a whole lot of fun as a kid. Uh, my folks owned a, a, one of the more popular hotels here in the Valley. My father built it back in 1927. Um, it was the center of agriculture, and so I grew up in the hotel business. Uh, we also had a feedlot, so I, I grew up uh, running cattle uh, in the feedlot as well as out on pasture. We also farmed, and so I did a lot of that. And in between all that, everybody that worked for us seemed to like to fish or hunt, so I was always going with them. And and so, it, it you know, over the years, I... I had a lot of great experiences, a lot of them very funny, and um, so I'd tell these stories to people, and they would say, well, gee, you ought to put that in a book, and so I was 
talking to a uh, one of the uh, out, uh, one of the writers for uh, uh, the local newspaper, and he says, "Well, why don't you send me a couple of stories, and we'll see if we want to start a column." So I did, and he did, and so I, I wrote for seven years of my experiences growing up around the valley, and um, after that, um, people said, "Now you need to put them in a book," and so. I finally did, and so it, it's called uh, Outdoor Tales, uh, and it, it's about life in the Imperial Valley growing up as a, as a kid, wrangling cattle, running up and down the halls in the hotel. Uh, when my my father was, uh, when, when I was born, my, my father had drinks on the house at the hotel, and then my brother was born a couple years later, and he rode his horse to the fourth floor. I, we, we never did find out how he got the horse down, but, uh, you know, it, it was kind of Western back then, and, and we just had all kinds of, of, of fun growing up, and so that's what my book is about, all these tales, stories of, of things I encountered while I was growing up. Some of them sound far-fetched, but uh, they, they actually did happen. You we know, had, uh, and share one with us, you know, because we've all done things in our youth that we look back at now and go how the hell did we ever make it this far you know and you got one story you'd like to share with us sure i you know i in the summertime uh starting when i was about 12 years old we, we ran cattle out on sugar beet tops they grow sugar beets here and after they harvest the beet and they cut the top off it has a lot of nutrient value to it and the the tops dry up and they, they look like just little brown things laying on the ground, but they're extremely high in, in, in nutrition. So we, we would run cattle on these sugar beet top, and sometimes they didn't harvest all the beets, or the small beets didn't get harvested and were laying on top of the ground. And the cattle would uh, had to be checked twice a day because if they swallowed a beet and it got stuck in their throat, you had to rope them and ram a rubber tube you lubricated with mineral oil down their throat and knocked the beat down in their stomach. And uh, they got a little bit upset when you did that. So, uh, and mainly there were Brahma steers, you know, that would withstand the high heat temperatures here. And we had um, two crews, three crews going around. And so uh, I was about 12, and, and uh, the, the feedlot foreman's son was the same age. And We'd ride around with an older cowboy, and, and he had false teeth, and he was always uh, taking them out and carving them with his knife because they didn't fit. And we'd go to the restaurant after we got through the morning run, and, and he'd sit in there and he'd steal napkins uh, to polish his false teeth with and when the waitress wasn't looking. And uh, one, one morning we got through a breakfast, and uh, uh, he, he went in to use the restroom and... and uh, we went outside and got in the pickup, and we were looking on the dash, the pickup, and the whole dash was full of polygrip, uh, old tubes of it, uh, sitting in the sun. And uh, I'm not saying who it was, but somebody got the bright idea that maybe we could doctor up his newest tube of polygrip. And so in, in the course of doctoring steers, you, you always carried a, 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 an old chrome-plated glass syringe that you injected the antibiotics and whatnot into the cattle with. So we got the syringe, and we went back in the restaurant, and we 
found a bottle of Tabasco sauce, and we stuck <laughs> some up in the syringe and stuck it into the tube of polygrip and squirted it in there, you know. And he came out and got in the pickup and had his false teeth in his hand, and he got this new tube, and he squirted it all over there and stuck it up in his mouth. And uh, pretty soon he started gagging and coughing and clawing and trying to get it out, and jumping up and down in the pickup. <laughs> threw the door open, was hopping around the pickup, and he finally got it out, and he threw his false teeth as far as he could, and he got back in the car, uh, pickup. Says, I just bought that, you know, and it's no good. It already went bad sitting in the sun. <laughs> of course, we, we never told him what we'd done. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> Al, we've got, about, we've got about three minutes left. You know, you're in the fishing lure industry, and you had the opportunity to fish in a lot of places around the world. Is there one place that stands out over all the rest? Well, I don't think you could beat, uh, you know, the, the Salton Sea. Um, but also, I grew up with a neighbor who had an old airplane, and we fly down to Mexico, San Luis Gonzaga, and we fish. Uh, he rounded up all the kids and the neighborhood and fly down there in this old 195 Cessna, uh, and we land and take the boat out with a guide and fish, you know, for hours. I, I actually caught one of the Totuaba that they had down there back uh, in 1960. The uh, thing weighed about 250 pounds, a gigantic fish. We had a lot of fun down there. I understand uh, the fishing like it was down there is no longer like it is today. You know, no, today it's no longer like it was back then. We used to catch Corvina right off the shore and, and but uh, Salton Sea was was a fantastic fishery, and I, I, that's probably one of my most popular ones. Well, Al, uh, your book, Outdoor Tales, uh, by Al Kalin, uh, it's uh, published by uh, uh, Trifolium Press out of Westmoreland. How can people get a copy of this book and catch up on some of the neat things you did uh, in your youth and uh, even beyond? Well, the easiest way is, is uh, you, you can order it from a, a, a store in El Centro. Uh, they have an email address simply at home uh, at gmail.com, uh, or you can call or text them at 760-970-4164, and they can um, send the book to you. They take MasterCard, Visa, American Express, PayPal, all, all the various methods of payment uh, to get a copy of the book. And uh, if, you, if you didn't get that all right now, you, you can go to rodreelradio.com and, and hit the archive page and, and replay this interview. Or better yet, uh, you can go on Facebook and befriend Al Kalin, and he's got that information there, plus a lot of the other things that he's doing. Uh, Al, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you spending some time with us. It, it's great hearing about Kalen Lures. Always like hearing about the Salton Sea, a tremendous fishery. I don't know if we'll ever see it be the way it was again. And then also I appreciate, you know, having the opportunity to read your book and share some of the experiences of, of you growing up, it's, it's a really fun read. Well, I appreciate it, yeah. I, I, I look forward to uh, coming over to San Diego fishing with you one of these days. 
Boy, that would be great because we fish Mission Bay a lot. Nice thing about Mission Bay, San Diego Bay, they are still fishing great, and right now it's fantastic. And uh, uh, we look forward to hosting you and taking you on out. That will be a lot of fun. You think you can uh, at least scrounge together another package of uh, Kalen uh, five-inch grubs? Uh, chartreuse with uh, black flake was, uh, I think, the killer out here at one time. Well, I think it still works. You know, chartreuse with black flake was our number one selling seller worldwide. Oh, no so, kidding. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. <clears throat> I know, because when we uh, uh, started off here in Western Plastics, we were looking for... Um, uh, uh, a color that could fish the bay, and we knew it had to be chartreuse, but we wanted to make it a little different, and so we put a little gold neon on it. So back uh, in 1985, chartreuse with gold neon was the color we came out with, but it was, uh, you know, one of those lures that uh, we were inspired by uh, your products, Sal Kalen, uh, and I can't thank you enough for all that you've done for fishing, and I look forward to the next time we have an opportunity to talk with you again. Well, thank you for inviting me. You know, that's really no kidding. It. I mean, you're you're one of the people that changed the face of fishing, um, especially in the West, uh, but it touched the world, which there's not many people you can say that about in our industry, and I can't thank you enough for putting the products out that I've fished uh, all of your products probably over the years, and, I mean, that was just part of the calico bass growing up, learning what to throw and, uh, you know, jig heads that, that you could get down and scratch the bottom with the, with your baits, and that was part of what kept the growing calico bass and sand bass programs now that are going along with the black bass things that we did. Even now, it's the, you were a start of all of that. All right. Al? Thanks for being with us. We look forward to talking with you again. Appreciate it. All right. All Thank right. you. Hey, Stan and Winnie, that's it for tonight. Uh, hey, we'll be back next week. I know we've got Sean Bailey. He's committed to come aboard. Uh, Roy Hawk, they're going to talk about their bass fishing wins, and we'll have other surprises for you. So stay tuned for that. Guys, good night, everybody. Hey, uh, in behalf of uh, Stan, Wendy, Jorge, Ben, Always in memory of Big Tuna Bill, Eddie McCune, especially in memory of Paul Leader. Thanks a lot, everyone. Go out and get them. They're getting away. We'll see you out in the water. Good night, everybody. Upon your door. Uh-huh. Gone fishing. I'm real gone, man. You ain't working anymore. Could be. There's your hole.